Oh, my goal is, as uh, what's his name said, uh, Scott, uh, my goal is to try to finish the entire book of Philemon. Um, and I sort of didn't quite succeed the last hour, but we'll try to do better uh, here. Let me ask you a couple questions. Who wrote Philemon? Anybody know? Paul did. Way to go. Who did he write it to? Nice. He wrote it to Philemon or however you pronounce his name. Correct. Um, Does anyone know what Paul's circumstances were when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. Where? Where? Yeah, see, so here's where you have some difference of opinion. The majority view is that he is writing from Rome, his first imprisonment in Rome. Others say, no, Ephesus, from Ephesus. Uh, I think you're, you're right, Paul. I, I opt for, for Rome as well, and I'll tell you why in just a little while. So Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned, and he also wrote some others while under the same circumstances, would you have a notion as to what other letters Paul wrote from prison? What would you say? Second Timothy, not even close, Ryan. Thank you. Not even close. Philippians, correct, is one of the letters he wrote. So Philippians, Philemon, there are four. So we have to come up with two more or we will not move forward. Not Corinthians, but thank you for playing. Colossians, correct, and Ephesians. That is correct. And because all four were written from Rome while Paul was in prison, they are called the prison epistles. To this day, those four books are called the prison epistles. You know the word epistle is just a fancy word for letter. Of the four prison epistles, this one, which we'll soon read, Philemon, is the only one addressed uh, very specifically to an individual whom you already correctly identified as being Philemon. This is the shortest letter of all the letters Paul wrote. In the Greek, you know what we're reading here was originally given to us in Greek. In Greek... This letter consists of 335 words, not many, 335, but it has a pretty significant message to it, and we're going to delve into it. Give you a little background. Um, Philemon, to whom this letter is sent, is living in a place called Colossae, Colossae, from which the Colossians come. If you were to visit Colossae today, what country would you have to go to? See, I'm getting you. I'm getting you, folks. What would you say, Paul? Turkey is correct. Colossae is located in modern-day Turkey. What about if you were to visit... uh, And so Philemon is a resident of Colossae. Uh, If you were to go to Ephesus, Ephesus, what country would you be going to today? Same answer is correct, also Turkey. So Ephesus is on the western shore of Turkey uh, along the Aegean Sea. If you go from Ephesus east or inland 100 miles, you get to Colossae. Uh, Paul had an extended ministry in Ephesus. That will become significant in just a second. It's likely Paul never was to Colossae. He had his ministry 100 miles away in Ephesus. It's likely he never went to this place, Colossae, and yet he came to know Philemon, the recipient of the letter, in a way I'll tell you about in just a second. Philemon was a Gentile man, wealthy, and a Christian. He had a slave. He was a slave owner. We're going to talk about slavery in just a few moments. He was a slave owner. One of his slaves named Onesimus ran away. And this letter written by Paul 
to the Christian slave owner Philemon is about fair treatment to be given to the runaway slave Onesimus. That's the whole point of this particular um, letter, uh, consisting of how many, are there like 25 verses or something in it? So that's kind of the background. Here's how it begins. Verse 1, first word, can you see it? Paul. Highly unusual for us. Nobody writes a letter today this way. You don't start a letter if you're the author of it with your name. People reading your letter have to wait to get to the end of the letter to figure out you're the one writing it. So can you see the ancient style of letter writing reflected here was much different. In ancient days, the author of the letter would immediately identify himself, and so Paul does. Paul, and look how he identifies himself, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That is unusual. In fact, Paul most typically identifies himself in an entirely different way. Not Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. How do you think Paul typically identifies himself? A bondservant, correct, of Christ Jesus. What else? An apostle of Christ Jesus. So if you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, you don't have to do it now. He'll start out, Paul, an apostle. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, same thing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So I ask you this question. Why doesn't Paul invoke his title uh, as apostle here? He typically does that. He's using a different approach here. Linnell, what do you think? Well, this is a good point. It's, this is a personal kind of a thing. Um, uh, but um, Linnell is probably wrong about this. But, <laughs> I'm trying to be tactful here, but I don't know how to. Let me, I mean, I could have said Linnell is so far off base, but I didn't say that. Um, but I, I, thank you for participating. Let me put it that way. Does anyone have another response? And please, anyone will be better. Okay, Paul, the better half. Yeah, this will be good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting point of view. Paul says he's imprisoned in Rome, in case you didn't hear. He didn't want to stir up trouble by invoking, by writing a letter, which others may have seen. And he didn't want to claim apostleship because one of the reasons he's in prison is because of his identification with the Lord Jesus. That's a good thought. Yes, ma'am. Please, everyone, let's all stand up and do this. Yes, that is exactly it. He's using this language on purpose because he's starting to arouse He's starting to soften the heart of Philemon, a slave owner. He wants Philemon to do the right thing by his runaway slave. Instead of invoking, therefore, his apostolic authority, instead of pulling rank. You have to pull rank at times, but sometimes when you pull rank, it hardens a person, doesn't soften a person. So Paul says, just as you so well said, He's going to be writing to him about someone who's in bonds. And Paul says, so am I. Be sympathetic. I, too, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Okay, good, good, good thought. So we will press on here. And, in fact, in this letter of only 25 verses, five times, Paul uh, makes reference to his status as a prisoner. So if he does it five times in 25 verses, you can see a theme is emerging, whereby he's not invoking his authority. He doesn't want Philemon to do things under coercion or pressure. He wants Philemon to do the right thing based upon relationship and res- with and respect for Paul. So look, we saw in verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and now skipping to verse 9, again, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. Verse 13, 
whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me. Here it is again. In my imprisonment for the gospel. And then the final reference, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you. So you see that theme is emerging here. Again, he's trying to arouse the sympathy of a slave owner here rather than pulling rank. So that's kind of what's going on at this particular time. And the text goes on. Paul and Timothy, our brother. Does that imply that Timothy was the co-author of this letter to Philemon? Did Paul write some? Timothy write the other? Did they sit together and pen this letter in unison? Um, The answer is no. Uh, This is Paul being uh, quite sharp and doing what he oftentimes does. Timothy was known to the Colossians. In fact, uh, he's a faithful co-worker with Paul. The Colossians knew him. He knew them. And so Paul is simply putting himself in partnership with Timothy, someone they knew of and respected, but this does not imply co-authorship. Paul wrote this, but he's invoking Timothy here in order to make his case, his appeal to Philemon even stronger. And now we have the recipients to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. For beloved brother... Do you have anything else? Does your translation render it somewhat differently? Fellow worker is good. Fellow laborer. Friend. Do you have, do you have something like dear friend? Yeah, all, all of that is good. You say, which is right? It's all right based upon the underlying Greek words. All of those Um, words emerge. You get the point here. Paul is uh, making an appeal based upon love, uh, relationship, friendship, esteem, all the rest. And this letter is written not only to Philemon, but verse 2, to Aphia, our sister. She, many think, is probably Philemon's wife, Aphia, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Some suggest he is probably their son. And to the church in your house. So here's what's going on. Philemon, a believer, was probably wealthy because he owned a home. Slaves, freemen, did not typically own a home. We can surmise Philemon was wealthy because he owned not only slaves, but he also owned a house. What do you mean church in the house? When wealthy people came to know the Lord in that day, they frequently volunteered their home as a place where other believers could meet for Bible study and for worship, where a church could convene. Why not? Why not go to the church? Folks, we have no record of a church building until the 3rd century A.D. Did you know that? Where did believers meet? In homes or outside. Things are different today, as you see. Now we have separate buildings, and there's nothing wrong with it, but sometimes we confuse it all. We think we're going to church when, in fact, we is the church. The church is just the housing. It's just a building that houses the actual the actual church, so you don't want to attach more to the building than you ought to. It's just a place where a very holy group of people called the Church of Jesus Christ convenes. Okay, in these days, they didn't have a separate building, and so there was a church meeting in Philemon's home. Now, Paul goes on, and I'm not saying he's manipulating him, but he's sure softening him up. Look, grace to you and peace from God the Father. Do you know there's not one occurrence of these two words in the New Testament in reverse order? 
Yeah, you'll never read peace to you and grace. Always grace to you and peace. Would you like to guess as to why that's always the case, Al? Yes, sir. That is exactly correct. And you and I can testify about that. Alan said you cannot have peace without grace. We were there one day where in spite of other things we may have had, we did not we, we didn't have peace with God. As a result, we couldn't have peace within and we didn't have many peaceful relations. Based on the grace of God, we come to be at peace with him. We have a better chance of being at peace within and as a result, at peace with one another. And so Paul always, always does things in this order. Notice who the source of these two very valuable commodities are. From God the Father, we would understand that, no argument, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this flies in the face of those who say this Jesus was just a man, maybe a good man, maybe a better man than you or I, but really a man. What why in the world would Paul put in partnership as uh, the source of grace and peace, both God the Father and this Lord Jesus Christ, if Paul didn't think of Jesus as being equal to God? And divine here. I don't think he would have put them in partners, a partnership here, but he does because Jesus is, in essence, God as well. Verse 4, Paul goes on, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. By the way, what's a saint from a New Testament point of view? What is a saint? Are there any saints in here? There are saints in here? On what basis could you say that? Ah, a saint is a set-apart one. In fact, that's what the word means. It comes from a root word meaning to be set-apart, a holy one. Not necessarily holy by nature, but set-apart for a holy purpose. You know who a saint is? A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart for his glory, you are considered a saint. Doesn't mean all of your behavior or mine is saintly. We're supposed to live up to our designation. We don't earn sainthood. It's been bequeathed to us when by grace Jesus moved us from the domain of darkness and put us in the kingdom of the beloved son. Where Our purpose now is no longer profane. It's holy. What is it? to represent him it's to live for him so essentially paul is saying here i pray that the uh, 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 he he's saying in in verse 5 i hear of your love and faith toward the lord jesus and all fellow believers that's essentially what he's saying and i pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. You know what Paul is very wisely doing? He's essentially saying to Philemon, Philemon, I'm about to make an appeal to you that you behave towards Onesimus the way I'm hearing you typically behave towards all other believers as well. He's simply saying to Philemon, Philemon, continue to be the kind of Christian I hear you are. Be that way to Onesimus. Verse 8, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. You see what Paul is saying? He's an apostle. Not everybody is. And Paul could pull his rank and say, here, I claim my apostleship, and as a result, require that you be compelled to manifest a certain response to Onesimus, whether you like it or not. Paul says, I'm very confident in Christ to do that. I could do that, but I'm not going to. Look, verse 9, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Why rush to the time when you have to impose your authority on someone? Why do that when instead you can make your appeal based upon a relationship or based upon affection or respect or love for one another? That would be better. And so he says, yet for love's sake, I, I rather appeal to you since I'm 
such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? Philemon, be sympathetic to me. I'm about to make an appeal to you on behalf of another. I could pull rank, and I'm not doing that. Instead, I would like for your heart to be moved towards me. I'm both aged and in prison. And by the way, I'm in prison for the cause of Christ. By the way, when Paul says he's aged, how old do you think he is right here? This may surprise you. We can kind of figure out how old he is. What do you think? 60? You are correct. (laughs) He's about 60 years old. Now, you might say, 60 years old, aged? Holy Toledo, if that's the case, I'm done. It's over. I mean, uh, what does it mean? Well, in that day, life expectancy was much different than it is today, folks. What do they say today? 70 or 80 is like the new normal or something? Is that what they're saying? Or maybe I'm just saying that. <laughs> um, it's wishful thinking. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Uh, but in this day, he, he was just about 60 years old, but considered to be an elder statesman. In that. Now, in that day, um, an older person, and in our day too, was sort of treated with a measure of respect. Um, they they knew some stuff. They made lots of mistakes, and so they, they learned from it. So Paul had this status. He's making his appeal to him as kind of an elder and as someone who ought to be sympathetically responding to because he's in jail on trumped-up charges. Now, verse 10, I appeal to you, look at this, for my child. Wow, the Jewish intellectual is referring to the Gentile runaway slave Onesimus as his child. Why? Well, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. How did that happen? So Onesimus ran away. And there's evidence he may even have stolen some stuff from his owner, Philemon. Well, where's he going to go? You got to leave town. Colossae is a small place. People will see you and they say, hey, Isn't that uh, Onesimus? Isn't he Philemon's property? You know, that kind of deal. And what they had the right to do was to imprint upon your forehead, kind of like a brand, the letter F, Latin for fugitivus, meaning that's a fugitive on the run. So Onesimus is smarter than that. So he's got to go to a place where he can hide out. And therefore, I think he went to Rome. Big city. The homeless population of Rome was huge, kind of like Los Angeles today. You can you could just fit in. You could hide in full view, so to speak. Somehow he made his way to Paul, who's in jail. How? Well, maybe Onesimus got arrested for something. Who knows? But maybe he specifically sought out Paul. Why? Well, Philemon, the slave master, had become a Christian and undoubtedly spoke about Paul, who I'll show you in a second, probably led Philemon to the Lord. So it's probably likely that Onesimus had heard the name of Paul, uh, communicated in a very good, favorable way, and therefore perhaps he took the initiative in contacting Paul. Well, anyway, however he came to know him, he heard the gospel. Paul led him to the Lord. Hence, Uh, He's referred to by Paul as my child, whom spiritual child, that is, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. Well, this is the sovereignty of God. Think about how unusual this is, folks. You have a Gentile slave who now is in a close relationship, a heart tie as brothers with an elderly Jewish intellectual who was a one-time Pharisee. And they are regarding each other as brothers in Christ now. Who in the world could do this? Nobody. It takes outside of this world help to bring together people that culturally different and diverse in a brotherly way. You can have legislation to that effect, And I don't think it's bad. Civil rights legislation, non-discrimination legislation, of course, these are good things, but they don't change the heart. 
Only Jesus can do that. And he did. Listen, folks, in this day and in as in our day, people groups generally segregate themselves from one another. So you have then and now Jews did not have much to do with Gentiles. In fact, Jews considered Gentiles to be dogs. And they thought they could incur some kind of ceremonial defilement by hanging out with Gentiles. There's no way Paul the Pharisee would have had anything to do with Onesimus, the Gentile slave. And Gentiles didn't think much of Jews either in that day or today. So Gentiles like to put Jews in ghettos. and It's easier to round them up and burn them down their places if you want to. So there's a, quite a divide historically between Jews and Gentiles. There's a divide between uh, blacks and whites. Surely you're aware of this. It's a huge issue, a big, big problem. And... Uh, there's a divide between males and females, old and young. And so when two people like this, a young person, an old person, a Gentile person, a Jewish person, a person with no education, a person with much education, when they're together and using these affectionate terms, my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, folks, the world has to take note and this is what God is about, bringing together otherwise separated, diverse people in one new family whereby the black believer and the white believer and the male and female believers and the Jewish and Gentile believers and old and young, all that, when they look up to God and say, our father... All uh, barriers are suddenly erased because they're making their appeal to the same father, implying they are brothers and sisters, not by legislation, but by regeneration. Your heart changes. And the very people you maybe would have nothing to do with, now you sit next to. You worship with, you serve, you love because you're brothers and sisters and the world has to take note and God gets the glory. Someone asked me a while ago, Stuart, why are you in that church? Why don't you go to something called a messianic congregation where Jews who believe in Jesus the Messiah go? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I go from time to time, um, but I prefer to be here. Why? <clears throat> it's a testimony. Uh, it's, I mean, in heaven, there'll be Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, males and females, and <laughs> we might as well get used to it now, folk. We're going to be living with each other forever. It's just, you know, I've had my unsaved relatives tell me, you know, we know you're into all this Christian stuff, this Jesus stuff, but uh, what's it like in this Gentile church you go to? So what do you mean? Do they accept you? How do they treat you? Well, those are not foolish questions. Historically, we just stick to our own community because we know historically Generally, Gentiles don't like us. In fact, they kill us. We just know this. And so we stick to our own. But I told them, oh, no, that's my family. I'm as much a part of that church as anybody else. I'm not a second-class citizen there, and I'm not treated that way. And if I am by someone, well, that's just someone who needs to grow in Christ. That's all. But we are a family together. This is overwhelming to them, you see. What about a black person going to a predominantly white church? It's the same deal. Well, other black people would be right to say, well, how do they treat you? What is it like? 
Because historically, we discriminate against one another. We hang out with our own to the demise of others. And now you have a young Gentile slave in a loving relationship with an elderly Jewish scholar. Now you tell me, well, let me bring it a step further. What about Philemon? He's a rich Gentile Christian who owns slaves. How do these three guys get it together? I'll tell you what these three guys have in common. They're all behaving differently than they ever did before Christ. You know about Paul, the persecutor of the church. You know about this guy. Now look at him, willing to be imprisoned for the name of Jesus. Willing to be in us. He was a great rabbi. He studied under great rabbis. I'm telling you, you do not hang out with Gentiles. You'll be defiled. Here he is, my child Onesimus. He's not behaving the way he did before Christ. Onesimus, you will see if I ever get there, he goes back to Philemon. The slave goes back to the slave owner. That's not normal. What changed him? How about Philemon? You'll see before we end. His behavior with reference to his slave changed. Look, I'm going to tell you something that I don't like and neither do you. God is not primarily about the business of challenging the evil institutions of society like slavery. We'll get to that in a second. I didn't say he condones it. I just said he doesn't seem to be about the business of directly attacking it. Why not? Instead of attacking the evil institutions of society, God seeks to convert the members of society. And that changes everything. I remember before I was a Christian, you know, when, look, when you get saved, you ought to know what you're saved from. First of all, you're saved from the wrath of God, but you're also saved from darkened understanding because you get the mind of Christ when you accept him. There was a time when, uh, with regard to moral issues like abortion, I would be on the side of do what you want to do. It's your body. Leave me alone. That changed enormously when I began to get the mind of Christ and see his high valuation on life, particularly unprotected life, the life of the unborn. I didn't get that by being a Baptist or joining the Republican Party. I got that from Scripture, the mind of Christ. There was a day when it came to marriage, I would accept the definition of it, two consenting adults who love each other. Love is what defines marriage. And so two men love each other, that's marriage. Two women, a guy and his dog, whatever. But then I got the mind of Christ, and I saw that he sees marriage to be a microcosm of his weddedness to us. That's why we're called the bride of Christ, he our heavenly husband. He had some holy purposes for marriage, and he defined it and limited it, and we have no right to redefine Well, that all changed. That's not a political perspective. A lady the other day accused me of getting too political. What are you talking about? These are biblical, moral imperatives. Nothing to do with politics. You can believe to any, uh, uh, join any party, you vote for whoever you want. We don't tell you to, what to do that, but the scriptures address these things. That all changed, you see. And so that was happening in the lives of these three men. So God does not primarily attack evil institutions like slavery. Now, I'll tell you something. I don't like this, but uh, you may not. There's nothing in the, there's no place in the Bible where the institution of slavery is attacked. Did you know that? Not Old or New Testament. In fact, on that basis, slave owners in the time of American slavery justified their position that way. There's nothing in the Bible said they would, said slavery is an evil. No, God doesn't directly address the matter of slavery, but he regulates it. Why doesn't he just directly deal with it? Well, folks, in this day, when Philemon was written, most people in the Roman Empire were slaves. If you suddenly did away with that, 
You don't have anything left. You have societal breakdown and chaos, and that would compromise the propagation of the gospel. And whether you or I like it, God is most about the business, about the gospel going forth, because it's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. That's what changes a slave owner, a cruel slave owner, into someone who doesn't treat another like property. The gospel does it. And so in that day, if there was suddenly an end to slavery, there would be an end to society and great commission efforts. But do you notice when God converts a soul, things change? I was reading recently about the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, and they needed laborers and used children to do it in sweatshops, things that we would be appalled about today. And a movement to come up with child labor laws was initiated by people like William Wilberforce, a thoroughgoing evangelical Christian. That's how God confronts the evil institutions of society. He doesn't necessarily remove wholesale the institution. He changes the members of society who become salt and light, change agents in society, you see. That's how it kind of works. And so... But this slavery was different than American slavery. I'll tell you what I mean. The kind of slavery we have had here um, was kidnapping. Uh, African people were taken entirely against their will. Families split apart. People treated like property and brought to this strange nation. And American slavery was pretty much solely based on the skin color of the slave owner, white, and slave, black. The slavery that existed when Paul was writing was not like that. And so you saw people, slaves of every different stripe. Some Jews were slaved by choice, were, were slaves by choice, for instance, because they had a measure of indebtedness and couldn't provide for their families, so they put themselves voluntarily under the yoke of another in order to be provided for. In this day, some slaves had it much better off than free poor people in that day. Do not equate this kind of slavery with the kind of slavery we imposed upon African people here subjugated. In fact, the justification for American slavery was pseudoscience on the basis of which the very humanity of the black slave was reduced. We can do this because that one is not really a person. That one is less than a person. Therefore, we can own that one. But I said they did to my people in Nazi Germany. You see, they came up with the same stuff. Jews are not really people. They're vermin. So when we burn them to death and put them in gas chambers, we're really doing the world a favor. It's just like getting rid of roaches. That's what you do. The oppressive group has to justify the evil by dehumanizing the ones on whom they are opposing it. Do not equate American slavery with the kind of slavery you're reading about here. In fact, the New Test- Old Testament even legislated after a certain period of time, slaves were required to go free, jubilee year and all that other kind of stuff. Some slaves chose to stay on with their masters because it was a different kind of thing. It was, in some cases, more like being an indentured servant and So don't equate that with American slavery, which is a grotesque evil, the consequences of which still continues in the lives of uh, of people today. What does God think about all that? He hates it. Hates it. That's why he seeks to convert someone like Philemon, who would then approach another human like Onesimus in an entirely different way. And so... That's kind of what's going on. And so Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Paul's saying a bunch there. Do you know the name Onesimus means useful? That's what it means. 
Paul is uh, using a play on words. He's saying, Philemon, it is true that useful was once useless to you. He maybe wasn't productive. Maybe he stole from his master. I don't know. And now Paul is saying, the one who was useless has by Christ now been made useful, not just to you, but to me as well. And that's what happens. Jesus makes hitherto useless people useful. As slaves, no. As ones who bring glory to his name. If you are a believer, you have been redeemed for a purpose, and that is to represent Jesus Christ. He can make useless people useful. And so Paul is saying Onesimus is now able to live up to his name. He can be useful to you and me for the cause of Christ. None of us can get the job done alone. I need fellow workers. You need fellow workers. Onesimus can now be useful. He's living up to his name. And then I think Paul, by extension, is saying in Philemon, you ought to live up to your name. You know what Philemon means? One who is kind, one who is affectionate. Paul's going to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Onesimus is going to go. Philemon could punish him, hurt him, imprison him, even kill him. And Paul is saying, Jesus has wrought a change in Onesimus' life. And I see and I'm thankful to God for the change in your life too, Philemon. Live up to it. Do not treat him like property or as a slave. He's a brother in Christ. So that's kind of what's going on over here, it seems to me. Then verse 12, I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Look at the basis of appeal. Again, Paul is saying, I could have kept him here. Onesimus was very useful to me. We're brothers in Christ. I need help, but I didn't want to do that without your permission. Wow. There's the one who has apostolic authority who's not exercising it. Verse 15, for perhaps, look at this, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. You know what Paul's saying? This is really something you've got to think about. It. Philemon, don't be mad about what Onesimus did. <clears throat> because Jesus used it to, to win his heart and soul. <laughs> and now, though he was apart from you for a while, he's coming back as a brother forever. See what he's doing? He's saying, back off, Philemon. Forgive this one. He's different. You missed out on some of his service, but you're gaining a brother in Christ forever right now. And so Paul says, verse 16, he's coming back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Here's the point of this short 335 word letter is summed up by what Paul said in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is really rough for us because we are so into our individual rights. It's quite amazing. Uh, Paul was not treated rightly. He was imprisoned right now. Onesimus was not treated rightly. All the rest. They don't seem to be laying claim to their rights. It's as if Paul is saying, you know, I'm a prisoner and I don't like it, but I can still do what I'm called to do. I can glorify Christ. I mean, even in prison, I can write letters. (laughs) And in prison, I can share my faith with those I have contact with, not the least of which was Onesimus, who he led to the Lord. Paul was saying, I know there's prejudice, discrimination, and societal restraint upon me as a person, but none of it can limit what I want to do for, for Jesus. I can still know him and make him known. That's essentially what he's saying. So he's not so much into changing the evils of society as much as he is, once again, of making sure we know the gospel is what changes a person. So a slave, cruel slave owner is changed, not by external legislation, but by internal regeneration, etc., etc. Now, when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, he doesn't mean those distinctions are removed. In reality, there still was slavery. 
And there still are Jews, there still are Gentiles, there still are males and females and all the rest. What he's saying is, but though there are all those human distinctions, nobody is worth more than another. We're all one in Christ. None of those divisions are to divide anymore. We're all one in Christ. There isn't a specialized class anymore in the eyes of Almighty God. He sees all of his kids to be on an absolute equal footing. And so when his kids um, don't live that way, can you see how it detracts from the glory of of God. There are still churches in America today that will not allow a person of color to come and worship. Today. Here's the sad thing about it. It detracts from the glory of the very God they claim to be gathering to worship with. It doesn't work that way. So, um, Paul goes on, verse 17, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. That's essentially what he's saying in verse 18. But if he, now look at this, if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Look, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, in order to sustain himself on the run, Onesimus took some stuff from his slave, who knows. Paul says, come on here. Let's not let that stuff get in the way of two brothers. I'll take care of it. And then Paul says in the next verse, I'm writing this with my own hand. That's unusual because most of Paul's letters were written by a secretary. But here to emphasize the point that I'll take care of whatever Onesimus owes you. He says, I'm writing this. I'm signing this is my, with my own hand. Folks, there are certain things that we just cannot hold against one another. They're petty, really, in the grand scheme of things. They don't matter. Christians are to be reconciled. We're to do the best we can to forgive one another. And just to make sure Philemon gets the message, Paul, who's been very nice and kind and gentle, pulls out a kind of a stick here. Uh, you, you see it, verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Then he says, not to mention to you, and yet he is mentioning it, not to mention to you that you owe me. You owe to me even your own self as well. Philemon, don't be thinking that you owe no debt. <clears throat> I want you to forgive Onesimus' debt. And by the way, uh, you owe me a debt. But for me, you wouldn't have heard the gospel. You wouldn't be alive in Christ. And I'm not, I'm not collecting on that debt whatsoever. As a forgiven one, be a forgiving one. That's essentially what he's saying. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging. I hope that through your prayers, I'll, I will be given to you. Paul wants to come. Paul's in jail. Paul believes in the power of prayer. Philemon gets you in your church praying for me. Maybe God will set me free and then prepare a place for me to stay. I'm coming. Then the last few verses, he thanks five men who were co-laborers of his, Epaphras and the others, because no one is an island in the Christian life. And he's using this also to remind Philemon, Philemon is not about, I like this expression, it's not about me, it's about we. That's what's going on. You cannot live the Christian life in isolation. You must be personally redeemed, forgiven for your personal sin by a personal savior but once you're saved you're saved out of the world into the body of christ the family of god that's how it is and then as someone has said then it becomes not about me but about we what's best for the body of christ philemon it's best for you to forgive onesimus onesimus it's best for you to forgive philemon as forgiven ones be forgiving ones and your whole approach to this cultural evil called slavery will, of course, change. And all the people in your church, listen, I can imagine one Sunday, Onesimus was in the same house church that Philemon was in. And maybe Onesimus learned a whole lot from Paul and was the most equipped Bible teacher. And on that Sunday, he's bringing the lesson. And there's the slave owner, Philemon, taking notes. That, folks, is the body of Christ. Jesus undoes all societal, cultural, discriminatory bounds, labels, and all the rest. And then we go out into the world as salt and light, and we affect it 
We show them the way of Christ is better. We show them we treat each other differently than ever before. Now, we all come from certain backgrounds. Well, I've learned certain things about you as I grew up, Gentiles, and they weren't good things. White people have learned certain things about black people and black people about what, and all that stuff. Now, listen here, folks. Leave it aside. <laughs> we are being reparented. I want to learn about the marvelous diversity in the human race, not from my granddaddy, <clears throat> not from my rabbi cousins who would have nothing to do with you. <clears throat> I, I, I want to learn it from my Savior, who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, who loves all of his children, who tells me in advance one day uh, the diversity of humankind who believe on him will be gathered before the throne, people of every color and race and gender and tribe and tongue, and we will bow and praise Jesus forever. That's where the distinctive of our citizenry as children of, of the king. There is no room for racism or discrimination in the church of Jesus Christ. It must be eradicated as an evil. How? Legislation? Yeah, I'm in favor of it. Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. Hooray. Equal access to, to schools. But it doesn't change people's hearts. Jesus does. Can you see why he wants us to emphasize not overturning society, but by going into it piercing the darkness with the light of the gospel so that people's lives change. You stop exploiting people sexually, based on race, based on gender. That kind of stops when you become captivated by Jesus Christ, who, by the way, gives us all the privilege of saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the highest accolade that could be bestowed upon us, to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, it's just a short letter. There's not much to it, but there's a ton to it as you think about it. Now, look, as has been said, we don't meet next week because we're meeting as a church family in both services in there. It's in-gathering Sunday for the Envision program. But the following Sunday, we're going to attempt to cover another whole book of the Bible in one day, and that will be 3 John, 3 John, even fewer words than Philemon, but rich, absolutely rich. If you have a chance, read it before we show up, um, and, and you will be enriched by it. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed, free not just from the penalty of sin, but also from goofy thinking. Thank you for changing our thought life. Thank you for helping us to see one another differently the way you see us. Thank you for the marvelous diversity in the body of Christ. It is enriching, not threatening. It is wonderful. And we want the world to see that you can hold together diverse people like nobody else could. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next time.